in you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we believe, too, that there is no other name that has the power to change. No one else can change us except the Lord Jesus. In Him is life. And so, Father, as we come to your word that speaks to us of what you've done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts to respond. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do sit down. Please would you turn in your Bibles to that passage that Rick read to us. It's 1 Peter chapter 2. You'll find it on page 1221. This is the third of a series where we're looking at this letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to pick it up from verse 11, page 1221. One of the questions that every Christian needs to ask is a really, really important question is this. Why has God given me this new life that Peter is speaking about? So Peter talks about being given a new life, a life that has a relationship with God, a life that's filled with living hope, a life that has a destination, a life that has a purpose here, a transformed life where we're forgiven and where God loves us in Christ as much as He loves Jesus. Why has He given you that life? What's it for? What does He want you to do with it? There are all kinds of ways that the Bible answers that question. God has given us life because He loves us. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. He's given you life because He wants you to spend eternity with Him in the new creation. He wants you to be part of that and to experience His love and His presence into all eternity. But those are not the reasons that Peter highlights. I want you to have a look at chapter 2 and verse 9. In chapter 2 and verse 9, Peter speaks about how we have become God's chosen people, a holy nation. And then he says this, that you may declare the praises of him who has taken you out of darkness and into his glorious light. In other words, Peter is saying, God has given you this new life so that you may so live that life that it speaks of what God has done for you in Jesus. Speaks of that transformation that has occurred because of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Speaks in every area of your life so that people will turn to Christ. Why has God given you the new life? so that you may so speak of Christ in the way that you live and the things that you say, so that people turn to Christ. Have you got that? Why has God given you life? So that your life, this new life, as you live it out in obedience, may so speak of God's work in Christ in you, that your life speaks of Jesus to those around who currently do not know Jesus 
so that they turn in repentance and faith to Christ. That's why he's given you the life. But you know, as you carry on that discipleship road, when we first give our lives to Jesus, we begin on a journey. It's a journey of discipleship, of following Christ, learning from him, following his example, going his way. As we go off on that journey, there will be bumps in the road. Suffering grief in all kinds of trials. Peter's already talked about that. Every, every follower of Jesus Christ at some point, if they continue in discipleship, will find themselves having to face challenges and costs that come from choosing to follow Christ and choosing not to go the way that they used to live. And so Peter gives this really, really strong encouragement here, this strong appeal in chapter 2 and verse 11. And he says, dear friends, I urge you, therefore, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires. Peter says, I really plead with you. You remember that old life that you used to live, the things that drove it, the desires that you had and that you see replicated in the people amongst whom you live. I plead with you to have nothing to do with them anymore. Don't use your previous life as a template for how you live your life now. Deal with those desires. Don't go back. And he gives a reminder, a warning, and an encouragement as he says that. A reminder, a warning, and an encouragement. First of all, the reminder. He says, you're strangers and exiles. Do you notice that? He says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. You don't belong here anymore. This is not where you owe your allegiance. Those desires that you used to have and are replicated by all those people around you that you see in your neighbors and your friends and even your family, they are not your desires anymore because you are now a stranger and an exile here because you've been brought into God's kingdom. So don't do them. Remember that you're a stranger in exile. Here's the warning. Those desires wage war against your soul. If you follow them, they will destroy you. The Willoughby way of life is very enticing. If you sell out to it, it will destroy you. It wages war against the soul. That is all of you, everything. It wages war against this new life that God has given you. You can't live healthily as a Christian if you follow the desires of everybody else and the desires of the world around you and the desires that you used to follow. A reminder, a warning, and then an encouragement. Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Jesus once said, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's Jesus. Do you hear the echoes? This is Peter's version of that. It's his expression of exactly that. Live such good lives among your neighbors, those who don't believe in Christ and follow him, 
that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. What's Peter saying? He's saying, follow Christ, even though it costs you. Get rid of those desires that you once had. Don't live your life in that kind of way anymore. Live your life in such a way that people see your life speaks of Christ. So that as a result, they turn to Christ. Peter's saying, there's a day coming when we'll all stand before Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to come again. That's the day when God visits us. And he says, if you live your life following Christ, even though it costs you, there will be people on that day who will be joining you for all eternity because they saw your life, heard about what you spoke about, saw the cost that you were willing to, to make to follow Jesus. They saw your life. Some of them were your neighbors. Some of them were your friends. Some of them were your family. Some of them were people you've never even met, but they saw your life and they gave their life to Christ because of that, and on that day, they'll be with you. Why has God given you the life that he's given you, this new life in Christ, so that our lives so speak of Christ that people may see our lives and see that the cost that we're willing to make to follow Jesus, to go Jesus' way rather than any other day, whatever the way, whatever the cost, that our lives so speak of Christ that people see Christ being lived out and turn to Christ. Lives that speak are being taken out of darkness and brought into God's glorious light. Peter now gives three examples of where there will be challenges for his readers to follow Christ. Three points of struggle for his readers. The first one is general. It applies to everybody. It's about living in society as a whole, living in the legal structures of the first century, living in the political structures of the first century, living in society with people who have a very different worldview and a way of doing things. That's the first one. The second one is addressed to the workplace, which in the first century was not modern liberal capitalism. It was a slave economy. So he speaks to slaves, those who were the most vulnerable in the workforce. And then the third group, he addresses marriage. And again, he addresses the most vulnerable group amongst his readers, wives who are married to unbelieving husbands. Three examples. Now, bear in mind that they're all first century examples, so we need to look at how it functions then and then transfer the principles to now. As I say, we do not live in a slave economy, although the way some of you work and some of the bosses that you have to endure, frankly, you might have been better with a first century master who was really kind. However, now, some things to bear in mind as we come to this. Number one, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you 
owe total obedience to only one person, and that's God. Peter reserves the language of obey to our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 and verse 2 talks about how we've been chosen to be obedient in Christ. We obey Christ. In chapter 2 and verse 16, he says, live as God's slaves. We owe total obedience to only one person, and that's God. Here's the second thing to bear in mind. The gospel sets us free as regards all other relationships. We are free. Verse 16, live as free people. We are God's chosen people. We are the people of God. We belong to a new era. That means that we are strangers and pilgrims here. That means that our loyalties do not lie here. They lie with God. We are free. And notice how subversive Peter is here. Verse 17, honor everybody. Respect. Show proper respect, he says, to everybody. And what comes last in the list in verse 17? Have a look. The emperor. That's subversive, isn't it? The emperor's at the end of the list. And the language is exactly the same as the language for respect everybody. But... You know, in a new set of relationships. So he says, love the family of believers and fear God. We owe total obedience only to God himself, and God sets us free. So when Peter urges his readers to submit, notice the word, Verse 13, submit to the emperor or governors or slaves to masters or wives to husbands, he is addressing them as free people. And he is asking them, calling on them to make a choice to defer in those relationships. To defer to the emperor and to the governors and to the master if they were a slave or to the husbands if they're married to a a non-Christian believer. So, as Christians, we owe obedience, total obedience only to God. Otherwise, we are free, and to submit is not the same as to obey, and it is a choice. To defer to the way that those relationships operate, the structures of those relationships. Choose to do it. And then he says, it's God's will that you do that. It's God's will that Christians should, as far as possible, conform their lives to the way that society orders itself. You're free, but it's God's will that you choose to do that. Verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Chapter 2, verse 15, it's God's will. Chapter 2, verse 18, slaves in reverent fear of God. Chapter 3 and verse 1, in the same way, that is, for the same reason. Now, 
to the best of my knowledge, every society orders itself in respect to those three things and others. Otherwise, it descends into chaos. Every society has some form of government, some, some operation of law, of relationships, how relationships operate between people in community. Every society has some way of organizing its economic life. Every, every society has some way of ordering the relationship between men and women, the sexual relationship between men and women. And that's part of God's good care for this fallen world. He has so set up the world so that societies create those kinds of structures. They differ across time and between places in the first century. If you lived in where Peter is writing his letter to, you lived in an empire under an emperor which did not work the way that the queen rules over Australia, or even how Malcolm Turnbull rules over Australia. It was not a liberal democracy. The economy was a slave economy. It's estimated that by the end of the first century, about a third of the population of Rome was comprised of slaves. They were a major factor in the workforce. That's how it worked. Marriage in the first century was very different from what it is today. The, the husband was the head of the household and made the decision generally about which religion the family was going to follow. His word was law. Every society has some way of structuring itself. Those things differ across time and between places. They are all flawed and, to a greater or lesser extent, toxic. Some of you have had experience of working in a toxic work environment. You're not working in a slave economy, but your experience of work has been highly destructive. Same is true of marriage, even Christian marriages. They're all flawed, and none of them will last. When Christ returns again, they'll all go. These ways of operating, they'll all go, including marriage. There is no marriage in the new creation. Jesus said so. We need to bear those things in mind, but let's go back to the central purpose that Peter is articulating here. God's purpose for us is to conform our lives to the prevailing structures, the prevailing way that relationships function. And he gives these three examples, society in general, how you relate to the authorities, how you relate in the economic sphere in the workplace and in marriage, we are to conform our lives to those prevailing structures of relationships as much as we can, that is in a way that is consistent with our obedience to Christ because we are total obedience to Him, not to our husband or wife or to our employer. As much as we can so that people will be one for Christ. Do you got that? Let's have a look at those three relationships. First one, relationships in the community, with the wider community, those around us. What does Peter say that we should do there? Well, two things. 
Number one is we should respect authority. So in verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme governor, uh, authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. We are to live as law-abiding citizens. We are to respect, as far as we can, under our total allegiance to God, we are to reflect, we are to respect the authorities, the people who are in positions of power. That is what Christians are to do. And we are to do what's right. So in verse 16, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Your first allegiance is to God. You are not first and foremost an Australian. I am not first and foremost an Australian. Not because I was born in the UK, but because my first allegiance, my total allegiance, needs to be to Jesus Christ. We're part of his new nation. So respect authority. Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. And then the other side of that is that we are to do good. Verse 15, it's God's will that by doing good will undermine the criticisms that people have of us and so on. We're to do the God-honoring thing even if it costs us in our society. And notice, these are things that people see. They may see your good works and glorify God on the day that he visits us. See them. How many people see you reading the Bible? I suspect not very many. You might do it on the train, but nobody's looking anyway. How many people see you pray? Not many. Peter is talking about the things that people see and experience. The things that we do in our society that bless our society, that are God-honoring even when it costs us. That's what he's asking them to do. So, a question we might want to ask is this. If St. Stephen's as a community didn't exist, what difference would it make in our community? What would people miss if we weren't here? Would they miss us? They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Remember that God has given us our lives so that our lives so speak of Christ in our relationships in society that people turn to Christ. Second one, slaves. Verse 18, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Now, once again, submission is a choice, which is ironic, isn't it? Because slaves didn't have a choice. They're at the bottom of the pile. He's saying choose to submit because he's addressing them as free people in Christ. Choose to submit. Choose to defer to your master, even though they may not deserve that respect, even if they are not worthy of it. But it's out of, notice, reverent fear for God. Not because you fear your master, but out of reverent fear for God, out of obedience to him. But do you remember the principle? Choose to conform your life. In this case, in the economic structures, as a slave, choose to conform your life to the structures of those relationships in such a way, as far as you possibly can, in a way that's consistent with your obedience to Christ so that your life speaks of Christ to your master. 
The particular issue that Peter has in mind, though, here is suffering from doing, for doing good. Verse 20. That's what Peter commends. For example, he is a slave. He finds himself with a choice. He can choose to obey God, but he's concerned about the consequences because obeying God, doing the right thing, may bring him into conflict with his master. What does he do? Peter's saying, choose to follow God. That's what he's saying. Even if, even if, there are consequences. Verse 21, to this you were called. And he uses the example of Jesus. Now, our context is not a slave economy. Is it? You're free people. Really? Anyway, the principle still applies. Let me put it like this. Those of you in the workplace, choose to submit, choose. Choose to submit, that is defer to and show respect to. Choose to submit to your boss the way that your work life is structured, the expectations that there are of you, the way that your workplace functions as far as you possibly can, that is, as far as is consistent with your obedience to Christ, so that your life speaks of Christ. And that means that when you're faced with a decision about doing the right thing at work, the God-honoring thing, even though there are consequences that you may face in terms of your relationships with your boss or your relationships with your colleagues or your career prospects or even your job security, do what's right. Now, you need to work out how that's going to work in your workplace. You need to ask for wisdom for that, but those are the principles. You need to do it in conversation with other people. It's really good to have godly conversations with one another. We are to live out this life together. We need each other. But those are the principles. Do what's right. Remember, verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Our lives are so to speak of Christ that people turn to Christ. Wives, and the particular emphasis that he has here, chapter 3 and verse 1, is wives with unbelieving husbands. And again, I want you to notice the purpose. He's asking them to choose to submit, to defer to their husband, to the way in which their marriage operates, their individual marriage, and their marriage within a first century structure of marriage to choose to submit so that their unbelieving husbands might be one for Christ. Chapter 1, verse 3, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. What's he saying? He's saying, as far as you possibly can, conform to the way that your marriage operates. That may involve some frustrations, it means respecting your husband even though he's not a believer. 
but as far as you possibly can, as far as your obedience to Christ allows, submit to the way that your marriage works. By the way, submission is a choice, and it's not submission that means submission to anything. He is not here saying, this has, there is no way in which we can read this to mean that if you're in an abusive relationship, you should submit to it. Can I just make that really, really clear? This is not about submission to physical abuse, verbal abuse, mental abuse, any kind of abuse. You choose to submit, even though that means putting up with compromises and so on, as much as you possibly can, as much as your obedience to Christ allows, so that your husband might be one for Christ. And he uses the example of Sarah, the wife of Abraham, in verse 6. Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. He uses the word obey there, actually. It's a really interesting example. The, the most interesting examples of where Sarah obeyed Abraham were actually instances where Abraham didn't make very wise choices. Isn't that interesting? But out of respect for her husband, she followed him. Isn't that interesting? Choose as far as you possibly can to conform to the structures, the relationships within your marriage, how they operate. Focus secondly on holiness. Verse 3 of chapter 3. Focus on holiness. Your beauty, wives, should not come from elaborate outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfailing beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Nicely turned out, wives. Uh, I like it when my wife turns, let me put it personally. I like it when my wife turns out nicely. I, I, that's, that's great. Um, but he's saying make sure that your priority is your godliness, not how you look. So just in case anybody thinks, this isn't a way of getting off the hook about how you look. <laughs> okay. Please don't come and ask me about it afterwards. He's saying it's put the focus on holiness, not on fashion. That's what he's saying. And don't be afraid. Don't let fear stop you from following Christ. You may be fearful that if you follow Christ, it will bring conflict into your relationship with your husband. It may bring strains and stresses, difficulties. He says, don't be afraid. Do the right thing. That is the God-honoring thing in your marriage. Chapter 3 and verse 6, do what's right. That's right in God's eyes, not your husband's. Do what's right and don't give way to fear. Now again, first century marriage is very different in many ways from a 21st century wife, but apply the principles. If you're married to a non-Christian husband, accommodate as far as you can to your husband, as far as your allegiance to Christ allows, even though that will involve certain compromises that you will have to make. Work those out in terms of conversations that you have with people. You need to make those decisions. 
Make sure that your first allegiance is to God, but you will have to make compromises. Work those out. Work out where to draw the lines. But the important thing is that your life so speaks of Christ that as a result, your husband may be one for Christ. And then he talks to husbands in verse 7, and it's addressed to husbands who are Christians who seem to be married to Christian wives. But actually, his concern is still about wives, you notice. The emphasis is on wives. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing may hinder your prayers. Why does he address Christian husbands? I mean, surely, if a believer, a believing woman is married to a Christian man, it's fantastic, isn't it? Well, here's one reason. Because wives were vulnerable in the first century. Vulnerable. Peter talks about them as the weaker partner. Often they were much younger than their husbands. They weren't counted as part of his kinship group, of his family. They lacked the power of men, even in Christian marriages. They were the weaker partner. They may only have become Christians because their husband became a Christian as well. They are the weaker, more vulnerable partner in the relationship, and that's always been the case. And it's still the case, isn't it? It is still, generally speaking, the case that women are more vulnerable than men. I've quoted this before. It's really provocative, so I like it. John Lennon, at his most provocative, sings, woman is the nigger of the world. Yes, she is. He's right. And so Peter says to Christian husbands, be gentle with them, respect them, encourage them. But then he also reminds them that their wives as believers are co-heirs with you. In other words, husband, you may be the dominant figure in your marriage. They may be weaker than you are. And in the first century, they were certainly a lot weaker in their relationships than people, generally speaking, are in the 21st century. But he says, husbands, in Christ, there's no distinction. Your wife is co-heir with you. In the new creation that's already broken in, the old distinctions and hierarchies are abolished. And then he finishes off by saying, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. In other words, husbands, how you treat your wives is a spiritual matter. There is a direct correlation between how Christian husbands treat their wives and their spiritual health. It's possible to look really spiritual on a Sunday morning. The really important question that needs to be asked is how are you treating your wife? So, three areas of vulnerability, arenas of conflict, life in the wider community, slaves, powerlessness at work, and wives of unbelieving husbands. And do you notice the model that he uses, which applies to everybody, is that of Jesus. 
the ultimate slave. That's the model for discipleship. Chapter 2, verse 21. Christ suffered for you, living in an example that you should follow in his steps. He suffered unjustly, but continued to do the right thing. So when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And the outcome, the result of that cost to Jesus, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. As a result of Jesus' costly following obedience to his Father that leads to his death. You came to life. You were given new life. The cost to Jesus has resulted in life for you. That's the model. Our lives are so to speak of Christ that they will see our lives, including the cost that's involved. And there will be a cost in following Christ. But out of that, there will be people who come to Christ. Why has God given you this new life? So that your life will so speak of Christ that as a result, people will turn to Christ. Some of you have non-Christian family members. Some of you have colleagues at work. I'm sure all of you at work have colleagues who are not believers. We have people in our community who are not believers. There are people who are important to you who aren't followers of Jesus Christ. As we live out this life of costly discipleship, there will be people who come to Christ because of that. When you stand in front of Jesus when he comes again, you will look around and you will see people there who came to Christ because they saw your life and the way that you lived it and turned in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. But you know where that's going, don't you? We want to win Willoughby for Christ. We cannot do it apart from this kind of discipleship. We can't hope to win Willoughby for Christ apart from living lives where they see our good deeds and as a result turn to Christ. We've been given these lives so that They so speak of Christ that people turn to Christ. Let's pray. Let's just have a moment to be quiet. Some of you may be struggling with following Christ in Willoughby. You're just getting sucked in, seduced by the Willoughby way of doing things. Peter says, I urge you, dear friends, I urge you, as strangers and as exiles, 
don't succumb to Willoughby. Don't do it. Some of you struggling in the workplace, you have colleagues and relationships, maybe in a toxic environment. Some of you may be tempted to compromise on your following of Christ, not to face the consequences. And some of us, our family members, husbands or wives or children, who are not followers of Jesus. Father, please would you so work in each of us that our hearts are so in love with the Lord Jesus that we want to continue to follow him, whatever the cost, so that the people around us, our neighbors, our friends, our family members, our colleagues will see our lives and see that they so speak of Jesus that they come in repentance and faith to Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.